It's a delight to be with you this Lord's Day. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. I invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John chapter 9. That will serve as our sermon text for this afternoon. I hope that you have been making time to read through the Gospel of John throughout the course of this series. It will only deepen your understanding and help you keep track of what's happening in the story week after week. But in case you have not had a chance to read the Gospel of John chapter 9 this week, I want to honor God's Word and read a portion of it publicly one more time. And this will ensure that we are all familiar with the text. And besides that, we know that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And so it is my prayer that your faith will deepen and grow as you hear the Word of God read publicly. If you are willing and able, I invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Holy Word and listen to what the Spirit says to the church from John 9. As Jesus passed by, He saw a man blind from birth. And His disciples asked Him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work while the works of him who sent me, while it is night, or while it is day, night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees heard him say these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, this is a beautiful and powerful story with many twists and turns. If you've had a chance to read it, you know that there is a lot of conflict and tension in this story. And we'll get into some of that in a moment. Perhaps someday, as I read this, I thought perhaps someday we'll need to come back to John 9 and just do a deep exegesis and a mini-series on John chapter 9. It's 41 verses long. We've spent months going through books that were shorter than that, so maybe we could come back and, and spend some time delving into the textures and the language and the jokes and the chiasms and the music of this story. If you would like to do that on your own, just come see me after service and I'll point you to a terrific resource on this very thing. 
But in the meantime, we're just going to scratch the surface of the story today, and I want us to focus on a few of the easier points and grab some of the cookies off the bottom shelf. For the, fa the, for the past few weeks, we have been hanging out at the temple with Jesus, and all of this has been taking place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Slowly but surely in the story, Jesus has been moving away from the temple and away from the altar, down into the courts, and then finally out through the gate beyond the temple. I want you to know that Jesus is not running away from people who are threatening to stone him and kill him. Jesus is simply departing from the temple as Yahweh is departing from the temple. He is departing from the temple as Yahweh would do due to the idols and the images that are in the hearts of the people at the temple. So if you were reading the book of Ezekiel, you would see that there was a time when the glory of the Lord departed from the temple because the people of God had in fact departed from Him. The same kind of thing is happening here. Last week at the very end of the story, we saw that Jesus hid Himself from the sight of those who wanted to kill Him, and then He went out of the temple. And now we pick up here as he passes by, leaving the temple, he saw a blind man from birth begging near the temple gate. I want you to notice, even as you hear that, that there is some language of hide and seek and sight and blind. There is a play on words taking place in this story. Jesus' disciples want to know whether the man who was born blind was a sinner or if his parents had sinned. In other words, they want to know why was this man born blind? And Jesus explains that this man was born blind so that God's works might be manifested in him. Now remember that Jesus has just claimed to be I Am. He has just claimed to be the God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. That's why the people in the temple wanted to stone him. And if you recall back to that very old story in Exodus, Yahweh said to Moses in their conversation as Moses made one excuse after another for why he could not go on mission God said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now like the disciples, we want a more practical answer than that. But Jesus gives this theological answer. The point is that God is sovereign over all things, even physical disabilities and personal handicaps. And He is sovereign over these things for the praise of His glory. Now I urge you to try and remember that truth the next time you wonder how you ended up in the mess you're in or why something bad happened to you or where God was when some conflict or disaster strikes your life. Who made man's mouth? Who made man's eyes? Who makes him speak? Who makes him see or not? It is the Lord. Now you notice in the story that Jesus is telling the truth. He came full of grace and truth. But in this story, He is telling us something that we don't necessarily want to hear, but it is certainly something that we need to hear. 
And you can always expect Jesus to do that for you. If you're like me, just up to this point, just knowing this much about the story can be enough to shake you up and rattle your cage a little bit. And now that we are sufficiently shaken, we can move on and enter into the rest of the story. Something I want you to know going forward is that I'm going to take the Scriptures and like someone would take a deck of cards and shuffle them together and kind of mix things together so you get a, a very clean deal. I'm going to take two stories and shuffle them together because I want you to see the unity of Scripture. I want you to see the glory of the Lord Jesus in all of the Bible. And we're going to see something really neat in this story today. John 9 is, is a story that reflects and mirrors several ancient stories that appear in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And I'm going to try to show you that in a, as simple a way as possible this afternoon. I want you to try to bring these things together and listen carefully to the story. Jesus acknowledges right away that there is ongoing conflict between the day and the night, between darkness and light. He proclaims right away, once again, I am the light of the world. Now that he has departed from the temple, this statement takes on fresh new meaning. I am the light of the world means I am the light for the Jews. I'm the light for the Gentiles. I'm the light for Greeks. I'm the light for non-Jews. I am the light of the world. And once again, he is simply echoing something that we have heard him say many times. He has said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At the beginning of John's gospel, we heard, it, we heard in Jesus was life, and the light was the light of men, and the light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. We also learn that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that's why we see him leaving the temple. The glory is departing. This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. So all of this talk about darkness and light and all the conflict between them should remind us of some very ancient stories, maybe the ancient story of creation. Think all the way back to the beginning where God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and it was void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. God saw the light was good and He separated light from darkness and He called the light day and the darkness He called night. And thus began this rhythm of creation, evening and morning, the first day. Well, echoes of that creation story are now reverberating in this story in John 9, just outside the temple. You see Jesus doing the same thing. The light of the world has appeared. And what does he do? He begins to separate those who walk in the day from those who walk in the night. He begins to divide those who live in darkness from those who live in the light. And we learn early on in the story that the people at the temple are 
without form and their void and darkness covers their heart. That's their spiritual condition. And their spiritual condition is then represented in the physical condition of this blind man. He is sitting right in front of Jesus, but he cannot see him. The light of the world is literally shining upon him, but he cannot perceive it. And it is not for lack of light, but it is for lack of ability to see the light. It is not for lack of desire to see. The blind man wants to see. But he does not have the power or the ability to see. He has eyes in his face, but his eyes are broken and unable to receive the light. Now we must pity this blind man. We must pity this blind man. But in so doing, we must also pity ourselves. Why? Because this blind man represents everyone from Adam to you and to me. It represents all the people around us. He represents people at the temple. He represents the people outside the temple. He represents everyone who sins. Everyone who sins is in bondage to sin and in fact blinded by sin. As it is written in Deuteronomy, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and statues that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and shall overtake you. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind and you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness and you shall not prosper in your ways and you shall be oppressed and robbed continually and there shall be no one to help you. What is true of the world, what is true of the blind man is true of every human heart. Darkness covers the surface of the deep. And until God says, let light shine in darkness, the darkness will remain. The law tells us that blindness is a curse. And until the Spirit of God broods over you and the Word opens your eyes, you will remain shrouded in darkness without substance, without shape in your life. We learn from men like the blind man that no one can open their eyes. No one can make themselves see. No one can fix their blindness. No amount of desire and effort can heal the eyes of your heart. No amount of deciding to see or choosing to see can make a blind man see. No amount of naming it and claiming it can ever overcome the darkness. Apart from the eye-opening, illuminating work of God, no one can open the eyes of a man born blind. That includes you, that includes me, for we were all born blind, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now some of you might be saying, no, I see just fine. I can look around and see people. I see when the slides go crazy. I see just fine. 
But I'm not talking about how you see with the eyes in your head. It's about how you see with the eyes of your heart. John 9 teaches us that sin is a monster that reduces all of us to blind begging. It reduces all of us to people who sit outside the temple hoping for life, dwelling in darkness, grouping, groping in the darkness as at noonday. But the story also shows us that Jesus can do something with our blindness and with our darkness that no one else can. Jesus does something in this story that is so incredible, so amazing, that it should remind us of another ancient story, another big story. In this story, Jesus spits on the ground in the dust and he makes some mud with the spit and the dust and he takes the mud and he puts it on the man's eyes. And he doesn't just put it there. John says he anointed the man's eyes. Now all of this is important because in this story we see Jesus doing the work of a creator. And not just the work of a creator, but the work of a creator who is in fact recreating. So as God created man in his image and likeness in the beginning, so Jesus is now creating this blind man in his image and likeness. What was once darkness is now light in the Lord. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He opens the man's eyes, and what does the man do? He sees. He's now remade in the image and likeness of Jesus. As God formed man from the dust, so Jesus is reforming eyesight in this blind man from dirt and spit. And as God breathed the spirit of life into a dirt clod in the beginning and gave him life, so now Jesus anoints the dead eyes of a blind man and makes him see. And as God sent Adam, that first man on mission in the garden, so now Jesus sends this blind man on mission to the water. And John tells us simply that the blind man went and washed and he came back seeing. He came back seeing. What you should know is that Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam, which we have heard about before. He sent him there not because there was magic in the pool of Siloam. He sent him there because that is the pool where the priest went to draw the water of salvation on the last and great day of their festival. Remember a couple of weeks ago we heard how they went to the pool and they drew water out and they brought it to the altar and they poured the water on the altar and they sang of God's saving power and they prayed that God would send life-giving water from heaven upon the earth for the life of the world. And it was on that day that Jesus claimed to be the source of living water. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And now in John 9, we can see that those psalms and those prayers are being answered in real time in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus sent the man to wash in the water. In other words, he sends him to undergo a kind of baptism. And the man comes back seeing. 
This is the same thing that happened to you and to me. This is what happens when Jesus leads people from darkness into light. They believe in him, even though they haven't seen him. And they believe in him because they hear his voice and they obey his word. They're baptized. They are washed with water through the word. And they come back seeing. The water of baptism is not a removal of mud from your eyes, nor does it open your eyes or restore your sight. Only the Spirit and Word of Christ are able to open the eyes of the blind and illumine the heart and overcome the darkness of sin and death. But that water is a sign and seal of our new birth and new life in Christ. Now, I'm not saying to you that the man was literally baptized with water the way you were. I'm simply pointing out that the imagery between his washing and your washing symbolizes the same things. When this man comes back, Jesus is gone. Now, what's going to happen? He comes back to the place where he encountered Jesus and experienced Jesus, but he doesn't know Jesus. He simply knows his name. And for a moment, it looks like Jesus has abandoned him. It looks and feels like Jesus has left him all alone in the world to fend for himself. And it feels that way all the more because no sooner does he come back and people recognize that he is no longer begging and that he can see and that something has changed in him and they begin to antagonize him. And so he is attacked and he is badgered and he is criticized and he is demeaned by one person after another. All of this happens in the story. Suddenly he realizes that his eyes have been opened to the harsh spiritual realities around him. He is no longer just a blind beggar at the gate. He has become a bold witness for Jesus against the temple. In other words, what happens when he comes back from washing at the pool of Siloam is he has to improve upon his baptism. He is tested and tried spiritually, personally, relationally, in every possible way. He is a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he learns by experience in the school of hard knocks that washing the mud off your eyes is just the beginning of the journey. It is not the end of it. And you notice in this story that his testimony about the power of Jesus silences the critics and the crowds. His apologetic defense of Jesus divides the Pharisees against each other. His confession that Jesus is a true prophet of God terrifies his parents. His profession of faith that Jesus is a man from God infuriates the Jews. But with each and every test, we see this man growing stronger and wiser and braver. And I want to say to you that I hope and pray that the same thing happens to you, happens to your faith, happens in your life. 
The trouble with most of us is that our faith in Christ has never, ever been tested and tried. So we don't really know what we're made of. We don't know how to fight the good fight of the faith or why it even matters. All we know is that we were baptized. But we need to improve upon our baptism by engaging in spiritual warfare and by doing missional outreach and engaging the culture around us with the gospel. If it feels like we're alone, if it feels like Jesus has abandoned us in that moment, it's because we don't know and trust Him. We've got to know, we've got to trust that Christ is always with us. He's always nearby. He's always watching us, even from a distance. Always helping us. Always cheering us on. Why does He leave us in those tight spots? Why does He put us in those awkward situations? It is to test us and to try us, to see if our faith is real, to see if we mean it when we say it, Jesus is Lord. It's to test and try if we really see what we think we see. What happens in this story should remind us of what happened in a very ancient story back in the garden. You know the story quite well. Our forefathers were standing before a tree and they shouldn't have been there in the first place. But they look at the tree. They have sight. They see that the tree is good. It looks tasty. They're engaging all of this with their eyes. They don't realize they're about to become blind. Like the first man, Adam, this blind man was tested and tried at the temple. Adam failed the test, as you know, and then he stood trial, and then he was cast out of the garden by God. But what about this man? This blind man passed the test. He stood trial after trial after trial, and then he was cast out of the synagogue by man. Adam was cast out into the wasteland from paradise. But this blind man was cast out of a wasteland into paradise. He was cast out of darkness into light. Unlike Adam, he passed the tests. And then he received the ultimate reward for passing the test, which was free access to the Lord Jesus Christ, the tree of life, the fountain of living water. When Jesus heard that this man had passed all of those tests, when he heard that he had been cast out of the synagogue, he found him. Don't overlook that phrase, he found him. To find something means you're looking for it. So Jesus has heard the news. This man has been excommunicated from the synagogue. He has been cast out of his local congregation, the place where he grew up. That's his home church. That's where his parents attended. They were members of that lifelong. They were part of that synagogue. And in their context, to be cast out of the synagogue was to be lost. To be excommunicated from that tradition was to be condemned. I wonder if any of you can relate 
to this blind man and his story. Jesus found him. He was lost, and Jesus found him. He was cast out of darkness into light, and Jesus found him. And when Jesus found him, what does he do? He gives him a deeper theological education that begins with a very simple question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? To which the man says, Who is he? Who is he that I may believe in him? There's an openness here. It's not just his eyes were opened, but his heart has been opened. His whole life has been opened to the things of Jesus. Who is he that I may believe in him? And for the first time in the whole story, he realizes where he is and who he's standing in front of because Jesus says, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking with you. For the first time in the story, he sees Jesus. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Now do you see how he's progressed through all of these trials? He went from knowing his name is Jesus, that's all I know, and he's a healer. I believe he's a true prophet of God. And now he confesses that he is the Lord. He's God. He is the Christ. Now I don't want us to miss the point here. The story makes it clear that as long as this man remained in the synagogue, as long as this man remained near the temple, he was blind, he was in darkness, and he could not see Jesus. But when he is cast out of there, then he can see him, and he can know him, and he can worship him. To put it in contemporary terms, so long as he remained in a church without Christ, so long as he remained in a religion without the gospel, in a community blinded by sin, he could not see Christ. It took leaving the synagogue, leaving the temple, being cast out of that community to be reconciled to Jesus. Not to open any wounds, not to dig up any past painful memories for you, but I want to suggest that that man's story is also your story and mine. For many of us have experienced the same kind of things. When our eyes were washed clean and opened to the light of the glory of the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, when we moved from darkness to light, that came with a cost. And like the blind man who came back seeing, we too have had to let goods and kindred go. But like that blind man, we have gained far more than we ever lost. We have gained access to the fountain of living water. We have gained access to the tree of life. We have gained access to the light of the world. Years ago, I was leaving 
my office at the church where I was working in Oaxaca, Mexico. And right in front of the church, there was a bus stop. And at the bus stop was gathered a crowd of people who were waiting to get on the bus, men, women, children. And I noticed in the midst of that, there were some blind men with their sticks trying to find their way. And they were asking how to get on a certain bus and how to get around. And people were ignoring them and no one wanted to be around them. They just assumed that the blind men were asking for money. And so I, I made my way up to them and I introduced myself as a minister of a church and that they were in front of a church and they said they didn't know where they were. They were new to that city and they were trying to find a certain location. I said, let me get a taxi for you. I'll put you in a taxi and he'll take you where you need to go. And they said, no, we were told to get on this bus and this bus will take us where we need to go. I said to them, you're in the wrong place. These buses don't go there. If you get on this bus, it'll take you to the wrong place. You're going to be even more lost than you are now. Let me get a taxi for you. And so we argued. I argued with two blind men on the corner for a few minutes and they got antsy and jumpy and then I realized they were afraid of me they didn't trust me one of them detected that I wasn't even from Mexico he's like you're not from here are you I can tell with your Spanish and I explained while I was there he still wouldn't listen they were so afraid I said let me get you a taxi and I'll send you there I'll go with you if you want they said no and I watched them fumble and get to the corner and get on a bus that took them the wrong place at the wrong time. And I have that story ingrained in my heart and mind because it reminds me of so many people I've dealt with in life, in ministry, as a pastor, as a teacher of the gospel. The same thing. You go to people and you say, if you keep going here, if you keep doing that, you're going to be lost. You're not going to find your way. It's not going to end well. And you beg and plead with them, please leave that community, leave that mess, come into the light. Christ is here. But they're happier doing things their own way, more content to grope in the darkness and to feel their way. And it's heartbreaking to see it happen. But it happens all the time. Here's an exception. In John 9, we meet a man who encounters Jesus, and without seeing him, he believes him just because he heard his word and because the Spirit worked in his life. And he endured hardship and trial in the name of Jesus for his newfound conversion and faith, and he's put to the test, and he comes out on the other side, and who does he see waiting for him? Jesus, finding him. It's a moving story, but not everyone takes it so well. The Pharisees hear this, and they get defensive. What are you saying? We're blind? You think we're blind? And Jesus says, oh, well, you guys claim to see. But since you claim to see, your guilt remains. If you were blind, your guilt would be removed. If you knew your need of Christ, if you knew how much you needed to see the light if you knew how much you needed grace and truth to pour into your life, you would cry out for help. You would cry out. You would beg for mercy. But no, you guys, you think you see, so your guilt remains. 
For judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Brothers and sisters, as readers of this story, I want to say to you that we know more about Jesus than that blind man did. You already know more about Jesus than that blind man did. And you know that He is the servant of the Lord, that He is the chosen one who is anointed by the Spirit to go on mission to save the world from sin, to deliver the world from darkness. And I remind you of what we heard in our scripture reading before the sermon. That Jesus is the one who was sent on mission by God to take you by the hand and to keep you. He came as a covenant for you, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. He is the Lord. That is His name. And His glory He will give to no other, nor His praise to carved idols. He is the one who comes to lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths that they have not known. He will guide them. And He will turn their darkness before them into light and the rough places into level ground. These are the things that He does and He does not forsake them. You see the fulfillment of this word from Isaiah in John 9 as He takes a blind man by the hand and leads him in a new path. He leads him out of curses into blessings, out of darkness into light. He brings him all the way to life. And it is my hope and prayer that He will do the same for you. But in order for Him to do the same for you, one thing you must do is acknowledge your own need of light. You must acknowledge how darkness has gripped your heart and perhaps blinded your eyes. You must confess before Him your own sin and guilt and cry out to Him for forgiveness. Cry out to Him for life. Beg Him for mercy. And as we have heard and seen in this story, He is so quick and so willing to give you what you need for light and for life. For He is the light of the world.